Criminals are made, not born. This phrase was painted on a wooden sign hanging on the property of mass murderer Andrew Kehoe. It's his suicide note, his last statement to the community he destroyed, his disturbed justification for America's first school bombing. It's similar to ways in which future mass murderers blame society for their own actions. Take, for example, the Virginia Tech shooter. In one video manifesto, he stated, You had a hundred billion chances and ways to have avoided today, but you decided to spill my blood. You forced me into a corner and gave me only one option. The decision was yours. Now you have blood on your hands that will never wash off. This is what he said before taking the lives of 32 people, then taking his own. Mass murderers in America are widely known. But today we're going to talk about one often forgotten, the Bath School disaster. It's unheard of to most people, simply because it happened so long ago. May 18th, 2022, will mark 95 years since the tragedy. The method? Explosives. The aftermath? 45 people dead, 58 injured, mostly elementary school children. This is the story of the Bath School disaster. It starts with a 47-year-old farmer, Andrew Kehoe. In 1919, he settled into Bath, Michigan. Although he was an outsider, the Bath community eagerly accepted him into positions of authority because of his wife. Formerly known as Ellie Price, she was the niece of a very popular man, Lawrence Price. Lawrence was a wealthy businessman, Civil War hero, and politician. When Lawrence passed away, Ellie and Andrew purchased his farm home and 80 acres of land surrounding it. The couple was immediately welcomed into social clubs and impressed with Andrew's advanced farming equipment and knowledge of machinery. In April of 1921, the Bath Farm Bureau was formed, and because Andrew was a farmer with his foot in the door, he was elected to the board of directors. The following year, Classes begun at the newly constructed Bath School. This school was important to the community because it meant a better education for their children. Up until this point, kids were being taught in one-room schools throughout the area. The new, consolidated school was built partially with materials from a 10th grade high school, but mostly with $43,000 of local taxes. To come up with this large sum of money in November of that year, property taxes sharply increased. This was bad news for people like Andrew Kehoe, who owned a lot of land and wasn't getting much out of it. He also didn't have any children. Andrew responded to this decision by cutting ties with the Farm Bureau. During the second week of October 1922, classes began before the construction was even finished. Two years later, in the summer of 1924, Andrew seized an opportunity that surely sealed the fate of the Bath School. The terms of two members on the Bath School board had expired, and their positions were up for grabs. The seat in which Andrew desired had the utmost importance, treasurer. At this point, farmers had it tough, and it didn't help that the school board had spiked property taxes. While many in the community wanted a prosperous school, 
there were still quite a few opposed to the consolidated school and concerned about how their tax dollars were being spent. Andrew was in opposition to the tax increase and the new bath school. Therefore, he stood as a representation for those who agreed with him. People wanted a change, so they got it. Andrew won the election and was declared the trustee for three years. But Andrew's money troubles had started far before the consolidation. His last mortgage payment was made three years before he was elected in March of 1921. The townspeople of Bath perceived Andrew as a successful, honest, hard-working farmer and businessman. On top of that, he was a skilled mechanic, an electrician, willing to fix up the new consolidated school. He became somewhat of a handyman for the Bath School, and even set up a workbench on the school grounds for convenience. No one batted an eye, because Andrew was doing the work for free, and it was much needed. When the town's clerk suddenly became ill and passed away, Andrew was quickly appointed to the position, part-time, until the term expired. This was another win for Kehoe, because he not only benefited from the salary, but was able to make contact with nearly every adult in Bath. In October of 1925, Andrew got a lift from his neighbor to a town 50 miles out. There, he bought a 50-pound box of pyridol from a farm agent. Pyridol was an explosive available after World War I, reprocessed from military surplus. Because it was so cheap, farmers bought the explosives to clear rock, tree stumps, and other stubborn materials. It's believed that Kehoe purchased the hefty supply with the intention to flip them for a profit. Many farmers were hesitant to use explosives, but Andrew was an expert. He'd charge a little extra to supply the explosives and detonate them himself. However, demand for the explosives never came about, and he'd eventually find another sinister plan for their use. Or maybe that's just what he told people, and his intentions were sinister the whole time. The following year, in February of 1926, Andrew made a surprising purchase, a Ford pickup truck. For seven years, he and Ellie had relied on their tractor, the local train, and friends for transportation. And still, he hadn't made a single mortgage payment to his home in five years. The next month, $500 of inheritance money from Lawrence Price was released to the heirs of his estate, including the Kehoes. Instead of writing Andrew and Ellie a check, however, the executor for the estate simply applied the money to their mortgage, the one they'd been failing to pay. Two weeks after this, Ellie was hospitalized with frequent frontal headaches. Nine days before her sudden hospitalization, Andrew Kehoe was stripped of his opportunity to run for Bath Township clerk. Instead, the Republican Township Board had appointed a different man to run. Andrew was humiliated and saw the defeat as a personal jab by the community. The summer of 1926 is when things really began to spiral for him, mentally, financially, and socially. Kehoe had plowed his fields and planted his crops, then neglected them steadily and sold his entire stock of cattle. His wife's health had steadily decreased. Ellie was suffering from chronic tuberculosis, dubbed the White Plague. Above all, the board members of Bath Township were increasingly voting against his suggestions, and his three-year term 
was about to expire. Deep down, he knew there was no chance for him to be re-elected. He had taken a harsh stance against Superintendent Emery Hewick, while the board continued to admire and vote in his favor. In October of that year, a deputy arrived at the Kehoe's doorstep to deliver a subpoena. Because they had not paid their mortgage in years, their home and property would be foreclosed. This humiliation, or simply the next step in his plans, led Andrew to purchase more explosives the next month, two boxes of Hercules Dynamite. Weeks later, in December, a glimpse of hope came for Andrew. His enemy, Hewick, had decided to part ways with the school because the board refused to increase his salary. The board wanted the superintendent to stay and probably would have increased his salary had it not been for Kehoe. With Kehoe on the board, raising Hewick's salary was out of the question. On top of that, Hewick was tired of the constant harassment by Kehoe. However, Kehoe's plans had already been set into motion. He'd already dug himself into a deep hole he couldn't climb out of. At least, that's how he saw it. If anything, now he just had to work faster to take down his enemy before he left the bath school. On the 15th of December, Andrew purchased a Winchester rifle with 100 rounds of ammunition. On New Year's Eve, he practiced his murderous plans. His neighbors obviously heard the explosion and inquired about it. Andrew explained that he had covered up some explosives in the garden and wired it to a clock in his basement. When the clock struck midnight, a deafening explosion followed. He laughed, cheerfully telling the couple, I guess I jarred them up. This was in reference to his other neighbors, who probably didn't like being awoken to the massive explosion. Despite this strange behavior, no one was suspicious of Andrew Kehoe. Even after he told one acquaintance, they should have just blown the damn place up. When complaining about the new bath school, his sly, alarming comments and behavior went unnoticed, as well as the listing of his farm home on the market. Ellie was hospitalized shortly after this. It was her childhood home. April 6th, 1927, one month before the bath school disaster. Andrew Kehoe was defeated in an election yet again. The Citizens' Caucus had chosen him as their candidate for justice of the peace. He lost by 66 votes. Four days later, his wife suffered a relapse a month after her release and was hospitalized once again. With his wife out of the house and another defeat on his hands, Kehoe's murderous fantasies turned into plans. Than actions. The Bath School was comprised of an old school building and a new building, joined together. The old building had a basement with trap doors, while the new one had a crawl space three feet deep. This is where Andrew would carefully and methodically place the explosives, making sure to target the most crucial parts of the structure. All of the explosives were connected through electrical wires that he prepared at home. At night, He'd load up his truck and deliver the explosives to the school, hiding them behind the basement's trap door. He'd then return the car to his farm and walk back to the school so his car wouldn't be spotted while he was installing the massive amount of explosives. 
Kiho made a couple slip-ups that wouldn't go unnoticed, but unfortunately were never further investigated. One child reported that one of the school's north doors had been left unlocked and ajar. The day after one of Andrew's nightly visits, the janitor noticed that the trap door in the fan room had been left open. During a board meeting, one member brought up that a door at the school had been jammed, and it looked as if someone had tampered with the lock. Luckily for Kehoe, this incident was quickly brushed off. During the first week of May, Andrew started giving away precious gifts, without a second thought. To one of his neighbors, a valuable tripod camera that had been a family heirloom. To another family's son, a buffalo gun. He tried to give away another gun, but the father rejected. To his elderly widowed neighbor, he delivered a horse, harnessed and ready to go. The man ended up returning the horse. He was uncomfortable with such an expensive gift. Kehoe's only comment was, quote, You made a mistake by not keeping that horse over there. The same week, he sold the remainder of his hogs. Because he was the treasurer, Andrew distributed the monthly checks to all school officials. He didn't have to hand-deliver them, but he did. It probably made him feel like he had more power, placing their livelihoods into their hands. On the last round of checks he would ever deliver, something he said to a bus driver would later stand out. As Kehoe was handing him the check, it slipped from his hand and fell onto the bus floor. He joked, You'd better keep that. That may be the last you will ever get. The bus driver laughed and responded, Why? Are you going broke? Kiho replied, I guess not. The bus driver was puzzled by this interaction, especially because Kiho was supposed to distribute the last check four days after graduation, on May 23rd. In a house adjacent to the bath school, a woman began to take notice of the pickup truck driving in and out of the school grounds in the early hours of the morning. She saw a man carrying objects into the school on three separate occasions. She discussed the strange occurrence with her niece, but that's as far as it went. On May 10th, eight days before the massacre, an oil dealer dropped off 80 gallons of gas and 118 gallons of kerosene. That night, Kehoe completed most of his installation at the old school. He had already finished his work in the new section, save the final piece, the timer. Using long pieces of bamboo and well poles, he pushed wired sticks of dynamite into the building's two-inch piping. Again, Andrew forgot to close the trap door, and again, the janitor took a mental note of that the next day and failed to suspect a thing. That evening, Andrew purchased a second hotshot battery. It would sit parallel to the first one, resting underneath the school. This would provide the charge needed to destroy the entire school. On Monday, May 16th, Andrew picked up Ellie from her sister's house. They'd been taking care of her since her release from the hospital. It's presumed that he killed her that very evening. The following night, Andrew maneuvered into the crawl space under the school's main entrance. There, he wound a manual alarm clock to go off at 8.45 a.m. At 8.45 in the morning, the clock would trigger the deadly explosion. May 18th, 1927. Exam day. 
the senior class was absent, having taken their exams a week prior, along with a portion of the students in the lower high school grades who had done so well they didn't have to take them. The rest of the students were required to be there, while the youngest children were simply read to in their classrooms. At 8.45 a.m., two things occurred. One, Andrew Kehoe was taking the farm down with him. At the push of a button, every building on the property caught fire, shortly followed by an explosion of dynamite inside. Immediately, a neighbor and his three boys came to the rescue, unaware that this was no accident. They stopped at Andrew's back door as he approached in his truck. He quickly got out to fix a leaking tank of gas, and before jumping back in, that's when he noticed them standing there. Energetically, he told them, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Grant Parker does a much better job at describing the school's explosion, so I'm going to read you his words from his book, Mayday. Quote, And then it happened. The tremendous force of dynamite tore giant chunks of foundation from under the north wing. The accompanying compression forced floors up and walls out, leaving nothing for the rising and then crashing roof to rest upon. Within the school, students, teachers, and administrators experienced the blast without comprehending it, many without surviving it. Children in elementary grades bore the brunt of the explosion. Like a tornado, the blast hurled, tossed, singed, and crushed some children and teachers while leaving others relatively unscathed. There is the experience of a deafening roar, of whirring shrapnel, of stabbing pain and crushing weight. The numbness and shock mingled with the terror of being buried alive. For some, there was the emerging sense of escape, or of a nightmare. And for many, there was nothing absolutely nothing, forever. Kehoe's mass murder scheme wasn't done yet. His last step was to take out the superintendent, himself, and anyone standing in harm's way. In his book, The Bath School Disaster, Ellsworth wrote, quote, Before they got here and I could get my car started, we could hear the children screaming and moaning at the school. It seemed as if our car would hardly run. It was a ride that none of us will ever forget. We got to the school, and as we ran across the lawn, we met some people who told us our boy, who was in the second grade, was out and all right. I think there were about ten or a dozen people there at the time. The wall had crumbled each way, letting the edge of the roof drop on the brick and cement. There was a pile of children of about five or six under the roof, and some of them had arms sticking out, some had legs, and some just their heads sticking out. They were unrecognizable, because they were covered with dust, plaster, and blood. There were not enough of us to move the roof. It looked as if hardly anything held it at the top. Some of the men thought that if we had ropes, we could pull the roof over. I said, I have lots of ropes in my slaughterhouse, and I will go and get them. I ran out to the street to my machine, a Ford pickup. I had to go south about four blocks and turn west, and just as I got nicely around the corner, I met Kehoe in his car going toward Bath. He grinned and waved his hand. A road crew worker gave his account to the press of his perspective. This is approximately 30 minutes after the Bath School explosion. Quote, We got in and drove rapidly to Bath. A tragic scene confronted us at the school. The north half of the building was a jumble of debris. 
Several men were digging into the wreckage. We could hear the imprisoned children calling for help. I ran across the lawn and began helping. I had no more than started when I was bowled over by an explosion at the roadside. I got up and looked around. A great cloud of black smoke was rolling up. Under it, I saw the tangled remains of a car. Part of a human body was caught in the steering wheel. Three or four bodies were lying on the ground nearby. I began to feel as though the world was coming to an end. The explosion those men experienced was the work of Andrew Kehoe. He loaded up his truck with explosives and gasoline to witness the tragedy he created. However, to his dismay, Andrew arrived to the scene to find that a large portion of his explosives had failed. 500 pounds of unexploded dynamite would later be found in the basement of the old schoolhouse, as well as a tank of gasoline rigged to detonate. If these had successfully gone off, the death toll would have been even greater. Kehoe had plans in place for a setback like this to happen. He pulled in front of the bath school and called out to the superintendent, his arch enemy, 30-year-old Emery Hewick. Hewick paused his rescue efforts and ran over to the truck. Pieced together through eyewitness accounts and news reports, this is how the conversation went. Hewick stood by Kehoe's truck and told him they needed the vehicle to help with rescue. Kehoe responded, All right, I'll take you with me. At that moment, Hewick began to piece together what may have caused the bombing. He replied, You know something about this, don't you? Immediately upon saying this, Kehoe produced a rifle and fired at his death trap. His truck was filled with dynamite, gasoline, and metal scraps, screws, farm tools, nails, and bolts. He did this with the intent of killing anyone nearby with deadly shrapnel from the blast. The explosion immediately killed Kehoe, Hewick, and 74-year-old Nelson McFerrin, a farmer driving up on the scene. 33-year-old Glenn Smith, the postmaster, was mortally wounded. His left leg was seared off at the thigh. Ellsworth rushed to Glenn, who was still conscious, in shock and trying to stand up. Glenn told him, Leave me, boys. Run. These trees are full of it. Ellsworth wrote, quote, He must have thought the blast came out of the trees. I went after a piece of rope to stop the blood, but by the time I got back, the highway commissioner had pulled off his belt and was binding the leg. Glenn told him when it was tight enough. Glenn's good wife came at that time. As soon as she saw Glenn's condition, she broke down. Glenn said, Oh dear, don't worry about me. He started to turn pale green and was getting weaker, and he asked why the doctors didn't come. About that time, the ambulances pulled up, but Glenn passed away before the ambulance reached the hospital. Mr. Hewick and Mr. McFerrin were almost unrecognizable. Witnesses said that Kehoe and Hewick disappeared into thin air like a magic trick. A 10-year-old boy, Cleo Clayton, survived the initial attack on the school with nothing but scrapes and bruises. He immediately ran to the front lawn and directly into the second blast from Kehoe's truck. He died as a result of the metal shrapnel tearing his stomach and impacting his spine. Hundreds of people poured onto the scene to dig through the wreckage. Most of them were desperately searching for their own children. Doris Johns, a third grader, 
was suspended above the wreckage upside down by her heels. Her mother lived just a block away and had to get another man to dislodge her body and bring her down. It's believed she was killed instantly. Doris's 11-year-old sister survived with severe injuries. The Hart family lost three of their five children, two third graders, Vivian and Percy, and Iola, a sixth grader. Their mother, Eugene, cradled all three of their bodies. In total, Andrew Kehoe's attack killed 45 people, including himself, and injured at least 58 others. 38 of those killed were children. Some had survived after staring death right in the face, and that was precisely what happened to 24-year-old Eva Gubbins, a 6th grade teacher. The explosion caused her second-floor classroom to cave in. When she regained consciousness, Eva was lying across a radiator. Her legs were numb and crushed under the weight of a massive cement beam. Before the beam had fallen onto her, it struck and killed a boy in her class, pinning his lifeless body onto hers. Eva couldn't move an inch, not even turn her head. After her eyes adjusted to the darkness, she realized she was face to face with the lifeless boy, and she was stuck in this position for 45 minutes until rescuers got them both out. Eva told the press she could do nothing but close her eyes and pray. This terrifying attempt at rescue comes from Bernstein's book, Bath Massacre. Quote, The digging contained scenes of horrific near misses and gruesome failures. William Clock, a deputy sheriff, found a youngster lying on the rubble. Before he could lift the conscious child to safety, a precarious brick wall collapsed. The boy was crushed, Clock's rescue thwarted by seconds. Still, the lawman pressed on. He came upon the legs of a little girl sticking out of the pile, her torso buried beneath. Clock steadied himself and assessed the situation. He took hold of the girl's foot. It snapped off in Clock's hands. 22-year-old Hazel Weatherby was discovered by rescuers in an upright position. On each of her sides, she held two of her deceased students. As soon as their bodies were lifted up by the officers, Hazel let go and passed away. There are dozens of these heartbreaking encounters, similar to the ones just told, that involved the dead, dying, and injured of the Bath School disaster. At this time, Bath Township had a population of roughly 300 adults. 236 students from grades 1 through 12 were enrolled at the school. Everyone had a family member, neighbor, or close friend that was killed or injured in the Bath School disaster. It wasn't until 6 p.m. that the last body would be pulled from the wreckage. A volunteer for the Red Cross was the one to discover the obliterated remains of the lone attacker. Even as a veteran of the World War, the sight was shocking. He approached what was now a heap of flesh and bone wrapped in cloth. Sticking out of what was once a coat or shirt pocket, he retrieved two documents, the driver's license and bank books of Andrew Kehoe. Two days after the bombing, sheriff deputies discovered the charred remains of Ellie Kehoe. Her skull had been crushed. 
She was resting in a milk cart near the hen coop on their farm. The coop was the only building that failed to catch fire. Inside, dynamite was found beneath a straw pile. Kehoe had no mercy for his remaining farm animals. His two horses, including the one he tried to gift to a neighbor, were burned to the bone. Kehoe had bound their legs with wire, affirming their slow and painful death, and disallowing their escape. Then and now, people are left questioning why anyone could commit such a tragedy. What causes another human being to murder in mass? Like the many before and after him, Andrew Kehoe didn't just snap. He meticulously planned the brutal slaughter of young children and adults. And his reasoning being excessive taxes and losing his home sounds simplified. These are Bernstein's thoughts. No matter how much puzzling and questioning there is, the real answer, Kehoe's personal why, burned to ash with his farm exploded into senseless matter with his flesh, and was wiped from the earth at his own willing. The wooden suicide note found at the edge of his farm gives a clue. Criminals are made, not born. What happened in Bath, he seemed to be telling the world, was created by others. Kehoe believed he was not personally responsible for the mayhem. It was the fault of others who had pushed him to the edge, turning Kehoe into a man for whom epic death and destruction was his last means for personal expression. First, we're going to take a look at the brief knowledge of his life before he settled into Bath Township, Michigan. Andrew Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan on February 1st, 1872. He attended school in a small building near his home and soon developed an interest in electricity. It was a new advancement in society and it wouldn't be until 1925 that half of all U.S. homes would have electric power. Like Kehoe, his father was a farmer, heavily involved with his community. He also loudly opposed increasing taxes. In Andrew's teenage years, his mother's illness took a turn for the worse. By the age of 18, his mother was fully paralyzed from a neurological disorder. She passed away 10 years later. After her death, Andrew's father quickly married another, much younger, woman. She was just three years Andrew's senior, and they developed a mutual loathing. Kehoe briefly enrolled at Michigan State, then at a St. Louis school, to study electrical engineering. Not much is known about this time other than one life-altering event, and it would be revealed by his sister-in-law a short time after the Bath School disaster. At some point during his enrollment, Andrew Kehoe suffered a severe head injury that left him in a coma for two weeks. The cause of this injury is unknown. It could have been electrical shock or blunt force trauma or something else, but the effects may have been significant. If you listened to episode 24, you'll remember I discussed Brenda Spencer, the first female school shooter. Two years before she killed two men, she suffered a severe head injury from a bicycle accident. I talked about how that may have affected her psyche, and I'm going to do the same for Kehoe. Because he was in a two-week coma, Andrew clearly suffered a traumatic brain injury of some sort, a TBI. Many scientific studies have shown that individuals with TBI were more likely to meet the criteria for psychopathy than those who did not suffer a TBI. 
Important factors included in these studies were the age in which one suffered a TBI and the severity of it. A 2021 study of TBI and psychopathy in incarcerated females specifically showed that it can lead to, quote, physical and cognitive impairments and is frequently accompanied by disturbances in emotional and behavioral regulation, including personality changes. This personality change can present in terms of increased disinhibition, emotional indifference, and other non-adaptive social behaviors, including aggression and affective lability. TBI is not only linked to changes in personality, but also increased likelihood of personality disorders, particularly antisocial personality disorder. For people with premorbid psychopathic traits, TBI poses a significant risk of violence. We don't know if Andrew Kehoe was abused or neglected as a child, or whether or not he had personality disorders prior to his coma. However, if he had one or all of these things, he was much more predisposed to violent and aggressive behavior post-TBI. Although Andrew was known to the community in Bath as kind and compassionate, there are subtle first-hand accounts of his growing violence and possible psychopathy. He returned to his father's farm in 1905, and his disdain for his stepmother, Frances, grew tremendously. His father was unwell at this point and relied heavily on a walking cane to inch around. It was also likely that he would leave his inheritance money to his young wife and their new daughter, instead of Andrew and his siblings. In September of 1911, a tragedy happened, and some people believe this may have been caused by Kehoe himself. Frances was seemingly the only one to use the stove, being the woman of the house in those times. It was gigantic and ran on either gas or oil, and Frances had to light it herself with a match every time. One day, she lit the stove and immediately burst into flames. Her flesh melted off, suffering a degree of heat that ranged in the thousands. She screamed in agony, and her husband watched helplessly with his inability to move quickly and react. Kehoe quickly threw a pitcher of water onto Francis, and either he thought this would help her, or he knew that it would make it worse. When water is put on a flame fueled by gasoline or oil, it causes it to rapidly spread into a thin layer. This likely made what little skin Francis had left singe off as well. Andrew and his half-sister helped Francis lie down and then went to their neighbor's home to phone a doctor. The neighbor recalled Andrew arriving at her door calmly, as if he was going to ask to borrow some sugar. He knocked quietly at the door and asked the neighbor to call the doctor. She asked, why, is someone hurt? And in a cool manner, he simply told her, Francis got burned. Because of his tone and lack of urgency, she assumed it was a minor injury. Meanwhile, Francis looked like she had been turned inside out. He also told the neighbor to call a priest. There was nothing the doctor could do, and Francis passed away. The question is, did Andrew Kehoe cause his stepmother's agonizing death? He very well could have. He was a mastermind with explosives and rigging deadly, vengeful traps. We'll never know the truth, but it's important to consider.
Another incident that showed the darker side of Andrew Kehoe is the killing of a neighbor's dog. This happened in March of 1920, a year after he had settled into Bath. The Hart family let their dogs run freely around their farm, and of course, they'd wander close or into Kehoe's property, but they were all harmless. There's three different variations of this story. One, Kehoe claimed he shot the dog accidentally. Two, a child asked what happened to their dog, and Kehoe told her it had been burying a bone along his fence, so he shot the damn nuisance. Three, the child came back from a trip to find her dog poisoned, and knew in her heart that Kehoe was responsible. All these variations point back to Kehoe as the killer of the family's dog. The same neighbor witnessed him violent to his own animals. One day, he saw Kehoe pushing his horses past their limit. The next day, the neighbor returned and saw someone hauling off one of the horse's remains. He told Kehoe, I see you had bad luck with your horse, to which he responded, Yes, damn him. He ought to have been killed years ago. He didn't pull, and when I got through with him, he was dead. It sounds to me like Kehoe was inferring that he either worked the horse to death or beat it to death. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, Kehoe's last act of animal cruelty was making sure his two remaining horses couldn't escape the flames he created by tying their legs with wire. Three separate occasions of animal cruelty and one possible case of killing his stepmother. Before Andrew set fire to his own property, he dropped off a package addressed to Clyde Smith, his insurance agent in a neighboring town. The box had accidentally been misread and shipped to Langsburg instead of Lansing. In bold letters, the crate read, High Explosives, Dangerous. Once the package was located, authorities treated it like a live bomb. It was left overnight in the middle of a field and opened the following morning by an expert. It turns out, nothing deadly was inside, just a set of ledger books and a note. To Kehoe's insurance agent, it read, Dear Sir, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 cents more than my books showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary, the bank gained one cent more over my books, making the bank account show 23 cents more than my books. Otherwise, I am sure you will find my books exactly right. I thank you for going my bond. Sincerely yours, A.P. Kehoe. As treasurer of Bath Township, I think Andrew wanted everyone to know that he had his finances in order. This letter and presumed suicide note hung on the edge of his farm, were his last remaining words. Criminals are made, not born. Three days after the Bath School disaster, a group of scientists collectively gave their opinion on Kehoe's state of mind. They stated that they believed he was manic-depressive, and to escape it, committed suicide. However, this was in the late 1920s, and we have a much broader understanding of mental health. In the 1990s, Dr. Robert Hare created the Hare Psychopathy Checklist. This checklist is used to rate a person's psychopathic or antisocial tendencies and is still used today. 
The test assesses 20 traits and then gives the individual a score of 0 to 2 based on how it applies to them. If one scores a 30 or above, they're considered a psychopath. The maximum score is 40, and usually those without a criminal background score around a 5. In Bernstein's book, he references this checklist and states that Kehoe would get a very high score. He also quotes Hare's own writing on psychopathic killers. Quote, Psychopathic killers are not mad, according to accepted legal and psychiatric standards. Their acts result not from a deranged mind, but from cold, calculating rationality combined with a chilling inability to treat others as thinking, feeling human beings. Such moral, incomprehensible behavior exhibited by a seemingly normal person leaves us bewildered and helpless. If you want to take a look into the Harris Psychopathy Checklist yourself, I put it in the description below, but just know that a professional is supposed to check these off for you during an interview, so the results are not entirely accurate. Before I read the list of all the victims of the Bath School Massacre, I want to wrap up this section on Kehoe's behavior and psychology with an interview of Bernstein himself and Rachel Clark with the Michigan History Center. Rachel, what about motive? Was Andrew Kehoe the 1920s version of what we call today a lone wolf? I don't know that I would say that. Andrew Kehoe clearly was mentally ill. I don't want to say it's a simple answer, but that is the case. When the town was sort of reviewing what happened, a lot of the blame went to the consolidation of schools. Andrew Kehoe's farm was actually in foreclosure, and he was very upset at the fact that he had to pay taxes to build this large school in town as opposed to paying for the smaller country schools. And so he did sort of rail on about the taxes and how it was hurting his farm. So that is sort of the explanation that people gave. But the reality is he was mentally ill, and he actually acted out on one of the worst disasters in our nation's history. Arnie Bernstein, as the one who wrote the book, Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing, anything you want to add or anything you want us to understand about what it was that happened that day? Well, I think the most important lesson that we can get out of Bath is, yes, there was this horrible devastation, and a man who epitomized evil just took out his internal rage, whatever motivated him, on a whole generation of children. But what came out of it was people turning to each other. And it's the kind of thing we saw after 9-11, after Sandy Hook, after any huge, terrible thing like this. People came together community came together as a whole, and they worked with themselves and help that arrived from other places. I can't say it's healing, but they helped each other. It was out of great horror, out of great evil, came something really beautiful that people rely on each other, and that could not be wiped out by Kehoe. Now, these are the 44 victims of the Bath School bombing, excluding Andrew Kehoe, 7-year-old Ralph Cushman, 8-year-olds Arnold Bowerly, Russell Chapman, Robert Cochran, George Hall, Doris Johns, Vivian Hart, Thelma MacDonald, J. Emerson Medkoff, Harold Woodman, and Cleo Clayton, 9-year-olds Majori Fritz, Carlisle Geisenhaver, Lavere Hart, and Lucille Witchell, 10-year-olds Catherine Foote, Pauline Schertz, Elizabeth Witchell, George Zimmerman, and Beatrice Gibbs, 11-year-olds 
Herman Bergen, Emily Bromont, Earl Ewing, Willa Hall, and Percy Hart. 12-year-olds, Robert Bromont, Floyd Burnett, Iola Hart, Galen Hart, Stanley Hart, Richard Dixon, Elsie Robb, and Lloyd Zimmerman. 13-year-olds, Cecile Hunter, Clarence McFerrin, Emily Nichols, and Francis Hopner. 14-year-old Henry Bergen. Teachers, Blanche Hart, Hazel Weatherby, and Emery Hewick. Postmaster Glenn Smith and retired farmer Nelson McFerrin. At least 58 others were injured. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and welcome to the outro, where I talk about lighthearted true crime events to lift the mood a little bit before you go. But first, if you want to support me for free, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps my podcast, and I appreciate you. Thank you. I will be launching a Patreon this summer, and I'll give you a rundown of how that's going to be once I have it figured out. Also, shout out to the listener that went out of their way to go to my Google Doc form and let me know that my audio is a little too quiet on the recent episodes. It is noted and I appreciate you for doing that. If anyone else has feedback, case suggestions, or corrections, there's always going to be a link in my description. Okay, one more thing. One of my sources for this episode was MJ Ellsworth's book, Bath School Disaster. He lived through the bombing, lived in the town, knew everyone, and wrote a really solid account of the event. On Amazon, the books are listed as $150 and they're sold out. However, I just emailed the Bosco Museum and they are selling them for just $10 and they'll mail it out to you. Hopefully this is not a scam. So if you want to support the museum and buy a really awesome book in the process, go to bathschool.net and you'll find their email. And if you're wondering how I saw the book without buying it first, I used the Wayback Machine. Very useful tool. Okay, now for the lighthearted true crime to lift the mood. This article comes from ABC News in Denver and it's written by Colette Bordelon. The disturbing theft of a box of human heads has shocked the city, along with local organ or body donation centers. According to the Denver Police Department, a truck was parked in the 7700 block of East 23rd Avenue when the thief broke into it sometime between 2.30 p.m. Wednesday and 9.30 a.m. Thursday and left with a box and dolly. Inside of the box were human remains, specifically heads, intended for medical research. No arrests have been made at this time as investigators work to identify the suspect or suspects, and this box was stolen from Science Care. So this is a very rare situation, and because of that, they are now going to plant tracking devices on all of their shipments and strengthen their security measures. And the director of operations said, I really hope that this does not deter people from donating. She's talking about people donating their bodies. Donation is such an incredibly powerful gift, not only for enhancing medical training, but it allows that individual's legacy to live on. And their mission is to provide critical care skills training for future first responders or medical professionals. No one knows if the person who broke into the truck even knew that they were going to open up a box of human heads. And I'm going to tell you another one because that one was pretty short. This happened in Orlando, Florida. A woman was robbed via Venmo. This story is by Scripps National. A woman in Florida said a boy who looked about 12 years old used her phone to steal nearly $4,000. The woman said the boy went up to her while she was walking her dog and said he was lost and needed to borrow her phone. 
She said, your first instinct is to help a kid, like immediately, without thinking, and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. I just handed him my phone. After a three-minute interaction, the woman said she didn't think anything of it and walked away. That was until she started receiving alerts from her bank. Two Venmo transfers were approved. One was in the amount of $1,800, the other in the amount of $2,000, and she said, that's when I stopped dead in my tracks. And she contacted Venmo and not only discovered that the money had been transferred to the boy's account, but also that the boy's account was set up about 30 minutes before they met. And the woman said, I feel like this is a new pickpocket. Okay, that's it. Have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.